Hey, it's Jeff. A few things before I tell you about the conversation to follow. My next quotes book, Hugh Manifestations on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation, is now finally in production and should be available for pre order somewhere around the end of February on Amazon and in realman.com, etc. Um, I'm really excited about this book. It's kind of like a sequel to Articulations in a certain way, but I think it's a little bit more inclusive of some of the things that we're dealing with on a collective level with respect to, certainly with respect to abuse of power, something we've always been dealing with, but I think are becoming more aware of. And, you know, just also with respect to this notion I've been developing around rebraving. As I've gone on my own journey the last couple of years, it's become very obvious to me that, well, both myself and just so many people I've interacted with have on one level or another been unbraved by various forms of abuse of power in our world. And it seems very obvious to me that many of us are, are rebraving now, are trying to find our feet and find our center and find our sense of self-possession so that we can find ways to dismantle these unconscionable structures and create a true equality in our world. And that excites me. So Humanifestations moves a little bit in that direction. And I think you'll find it quite rewarding and satisfying. So in this conversation to come, this is my second conversation with Richard Schwartz, the creator of Internal Family Systems. I hadn't listened to it for a while. We recorded it a couple of years ago, and I just love this talk. I love the first talk, and I think I love this talk more. We got into sort of notions of non-duality and unity consciousness and the distinction between sort of having an awakened or awakening experience while rooted inside of a really integrated sense of self versus having those experiences while being disconnected from or seeking to transcend the discomforts of the localized self. Because it had been my experience that my experience of unity consciousness was very different when I felt solid, grounded, and integrated than at those times when I, you know, maybe was seeking a glimpse of another reality to keep me going. But, you know, I wasn't there for entirely the right reasons. I hadn't sort of just ascended with both feet on the ground. And when I was able to, and when I am able to, I think it's a really significantly different experience of unity consciousness. Um, we also talk about the soul and the self, and if the two of us are talking about two different things, and I, I don't think we really are, um, but it was good to talk about that. And I asked Richard about sort of the difference between what we might call soulmates and what we might call woundmates, you know, those difficult love connections that are worth fighting for, um, have a sort of sustainability that's intrinsic to them, and those that really don't, that, you know, I think he uses this cool term matriculation, like you, you know, sometimes you've just sort of learned what you're there to learn in that particular dynamic, and it's okay, and it's time to move on. And um, I think it's a really important and interesting question, because often in the therapeutic world, because there's so much stuff to work with in really intensely difficult love connections. There's sort of sometimes is an assumption that means you got to stick around because, you know, there's just so much grist for the mill, so much grist for your transformation. But sometimes, you know, it might actually just mean you don't belong together. So I think it's sort of an important thing to think about. Um, so we talk about that also. And I think it's just a really lovely conversation about internal family systems. And, and I, I felt like I had a kind of more complete understanding of at least where he was developmentally at that time when we talk around what IFS is. And I learned something from it. I feel like, you know, in my book, Soul Shaping, I defined my parts as sort of adapt these sort of defensive parts of me, or I just call them adaptations and disguises. These parts that sort of developed to keep me going and to keep me alive. But, you know, he made this, I can't remember the wording of it right now, but he made the sort of distinction between that and sort of a more loving way of languaging your relationship to your parts, um, like their inner beings that developed or that were destined to develop. It's kind of part of what it is to be you. And they, and they are really the best friends you'll ever have because they allow you to stay alive in this world um, and to make meaning in this world. And then ultimately it seems somehow are destined to be integrated into, in some way, what we might call the core self or the primary self. And uh, I think these are really, really important distinctions and a really beautiful way of looking at them that's not so kind of dismissive and dishonoring of them. Um, I learned something from that part of the conversation. So listen in and, and see what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. But first, just a little bit of 
Trevor Hall, to get us going. Got me bleeding, a certain kind of feeling. But I can never leave it. Good God, I know I need it. Arrows come straight for my heart. Arrows come straight for. So we had a talk a little while ago. Um, I wanted to sort of start with something that was left hanging there for me a little and um, ask some questions, see what your thoughts are on something. So towards the end of our talk uh, in the summertime, I said something like, we're not all going for the same experience of the core self. It's quite individuated, personality. We all have a profound and unique self. And you said to me, it's both, it's not either or. There's a level where it's all the same for everybody. But this particle and wave, when you come back into the particle and embody, there's a lot of individuality to it. But when you enter the non-dual state, it's pretty much the same. Also at the end of that dialogue, you said something like, um, you likened your discovery of the self, in quotes, as synonymous with that which contemplative traditions reference as Atman or Buddha nature. And then let me just read a quote. I have questions about this um, from my book, Grounded Spirituality, on this topic, and I'll get into the inquiry. Um, so this is on page 137. Before you can become empty, you have to become full. And that fullness does not happen by transcending the container. It happens by filling it with a healthy selfhood, one that is a dependable container for the full spectrum of life experience. And again, I am not convinced that anyone has accomplished this at this stage of human development. I believe we have much more work to do within the dualities, in the distinctions between shadow and light, right and wrong, healthy and unhealthy, so that as a collective, our ultimate foray into a more unifying consciousness does not bypass the as yet unresolved dualities, but builds upon their healthy and organic transformation. Um, And my suspicion is that once somebody arrives at a healthy, vital, and robust somethingness, I might call selfhood, they will have no interest in jumping beyond this human form. They will be too busy living, learning, and loving within it to bid it farewell. Yes, they may then enter into an awareness of a unified field of consciousness, that it will be a meaningfully different and more wholesome experience because you'll be intact. You'll know where yourself ends and where the everything begins. One more paragraph. Don't buy into the message that equates boundarylessness with an advanced spiritual consciousness. It's anything but. There's a crucial difference between an experience of unity consciousness that emanates from a healthy boundaried self and the unboundaried experience of oneness that results from dissociating from the self. If you want a shot at unity consciousness, unify yourself first. That's where the everything begins. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Don't leave home without them, close quote. So what comes up for me is, and and why I think that stayed with me uh, at the end of our conversation was that I wonder, I often wonder if what we're talking about when we talk about non-duality is something we don't have any business talking about yet. You know, I just wonder if, as a species, not yet reached a stage where we've gone through the self-assemblage requirements or prerequisites necessary to reach a stage to even know what that unity consciousness feels like from a fully awakened, fully embodied, fully sacred purpose-driven position of self-leadership, let's say. So what I mean is, when I tapped into this thing called a unified field at a Jack Cornfield and Stan Groff workshop years ago, I did my release work, I went outside and sat before the bulrushes, and I felt unified. I felt that experience of oneness that I often experienced through the experience of moving into my body and moving through my stuff. But now when I have an experience of that thing called oneness at this, I would say, slightly more assembled state internally with respect mm-hmm. to pieces and parts, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't feel the same as what it was before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel 
like it's the same experience for every other person. It feels like it's not even the same experience for me. And one of my problems, as you know, from the work I did in Grounded Spirituality is that I feel like almost all of these so-called spiritual experiences and quests and forays into the non-dual field are emanating from the desire to get out of here. And I just wonder if the reality is that we don't even know until we can move to the next stage of actualizing a whole intact, integrated, purpose-driven self, what unity and the wave experience really means. I've got a yes and no to answer to your, we're really on the same page with the idea that people are trying to get to that uh, to avoid being here. And at the same time, my experience, my personal experience and my experience with some, with many clients is that yes, you can taste that, that unity place. And for me, it is the same place that I tasted. You know, I did TM right after graduating college and, and I could get to that, that place and I loved it, but I was using it to bypass my, what I call exile parts of me to stay above them. And, uh, and it was actually very helpful in terms of having more calm in my life and actually more purpose. Perspective or something perspective, but it, it did make me uh, more distant from parts of me that needed to heal. Uh, so all of that I get, and you know, now I've done a lot of unburdening, and my parts are in pretty good shape and get along with each other. And still, uh, if I meditate certain ways, or like I recently uh, have done, had several experiences with ketamine, and I can go to that non-dual place in these different ways. And it's basically the same place from my perspective. And for me, that is what I might call the big self. That's, that's the, the wave uh, of the particle and wave idea of photon. And, uh, and for me, too many, I think we agree on this, too many spiritualities are all about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and my whole thing is let's bring that to this place rather than try to get away from this place to be that. Because, so, because it ends up bifurcated, right? One way or the other, we're talking about two different selves almost. So what pulled me into this a little bit, and this is very much my next growing age edge in my inquiry anyway, was when you talked about that the self that you found was the same self or similar to the self of the Atman self. The, and my experience of people who are in myself and my own explorations that go to that place, it isn't the same experience of self for me at all. It's, um, to me, that's the no self experience where I'm really just a wash in unity or something. And I feel like my work, and I guess the invitation intrinsic to my work and to your work, I think is to, find a place where what we call the imminent field of experience and the so-called transcendent experience are synonymous with each other or are woven. There's some indistinguishable weave so that when I come to this exploration or movement organically towards a unified field or what they would call maybe a no-self field, from a fully, strongly, vital, robust experience of self, I don't experience it as the way the Atmans or the Buddhists or any of those people are talking about it. I experience it as not filled with emptiness, stillness and silence. It feels vital. It feels alive. It feels individuated. It feels alchemically woven into uh, my experience of the more, say, expansive consciousness so that I really am not experiencing myself at the bifurcation anymore. I feel as though I am, I am that too, um, but not in a way that's uh, no selfless. Let me just read something Andrew Harvey wrote in the forward to Grounded. It maybe helps with this. Um, and um, he's giving me much too much credit. I'm not reading this to, um, to suggest this is true. But so he says, for me, Jeff Brown is a modern day alchemist, which isn't true, but the next part is interesting. He goes, by that, I mean he has embraced the ancient alchemical path. 
the ancient alchemical path has three stages. First, profound experience of transcendence that reveals divine identity. This makes obvious the truth of what's written in the Upanishads, you are that. The patriarchal traditions have mistakenly taken this for enlightenment. But the alchemists knew that this was only the first stage. The second stage is the stage that Jeff is such a master of. This is where the deep knowledge of the transcendent and the forces aroused by that knowledge are consciously integrated step by step with mind, heart, soul, and crucially, and most importantly, the depths of the body. As the second stage progresses, the third stage, which is called the simple thing, starts to emerge. And for this third stage, there are very few descriptions because very few people have truly matured in the mystery of profound union with all that this stage brings. So my sense of that is, and this is experientially based for me as well, when I encounter myself or others in the so-called stage of the no self or the unity consciousness field, there's not a lot of aliveness. They're flatlined a lot. It's very meditative, stuporish. Um, and that feels to me like stage one. Mm -hmm. And then stage two feels to me like it's different. So you're holding all of that. You're aware that you aren't all that, right? You are part of this unified field. You're part of the wave. But you're much more strongly rooted in the particle. Yeah. You know, you really experience the self as like Alexander Lowen's version, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, vital, and very individuated. Now let me pause you for a second, Jeff. So that's what I call self-leadership. That's when right. the parts... Uh, are willing to really separate and let you embody as self and they're all in harmony with each other and they trust you as a leader and then you feel all those qualities you just described and the, and the eight C's that I described and all that you live your life from that place so you're so you're from that place intrinsically connected to the unified field yes um, and it's fueling you and you're fueling it or there's some interchange or exactly. some synonymous nature of it or something exactly well for me there is the there isn't that distinction that you are that unified field in a particle form so you are very connected and uh feeding from it and you know you're embodying it and enlightenment is that really for me it's just knowing that this is who you are Yeah, I think my fear in all of this is that I feel like there's this extraordinary, magnificent self. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, don't mean in a narcissistic sense at all. I understand yeah. its connection to everything. That keeps getting denied, reframed, um, undermined, repressed mm -hmm. in the name of this very easy to sell quest for non-duality. Yeah. You know? I got nothing against non-duality if we arrive at it organically and authentically from our body outward. Um, I totally agree. That's, that's, uh, we're on totally the same page with that. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, I'm not, no, I don't know about stages, you know, Ken Wilber is really into that kind of stuff, but, uh, for me, the times when I do go into the no, identity wave state, it isn't what you just described uh, in terms of the no self. It is full of vitality and bliss. And often when I come back, uh, there's a sense of, oh, this is a really hard place I'm coming back to. Because uh, these bodies are, they keep us from expressing the love we feel all the time and they, they're high maintenance. And uh, so I have a real appreciation for, this is a very difficult school we're in uh, and it's much easier at that other place, but we're here for good reasons. We're here to learn. And so it's important that we do what we're here to do as you, know, as you write in shell shaping, soul shaping. School of Heart Knox, baby. Yep. But, you know, so, um, not to be a contrarian, but that place where I've gone and where you, I think, just described that's vital and blissful, I feel like, and then it's sort of a re-entry trauma experience to come back into contact with this body. 
Um, I feel like that, that you wouldn't it's put it that way. Call it a trauma exactly, but it's reentry drama. Yeah, reentry drama. It's a, it's a kind of um, rude awakening. Yeah, rude awakening. That's perfectly put. Um, so I wonder if I, I think what I'm going for is an experience of that no self, whatever we call that, that isn't just blissful, but that is actually also sometimes painful. Um, in other words, I'm not just tapping into the blissful wave, the oceanic blissful wave, but by I'm also staying connected to my school of heart Knox experience and still being able to access that state. Yes. That feels like a more, what he, Andrew calls level two, like a more integrated place where I'm holding all of it and it isn't, because if I experience it only as bliss, I'm going to stay split and bifurcated because I'm going to be down in my human body and it's tough, or I'm going to go to the bliss state, like a drug trip or something. Is there a way to be with all of this through the self in a way that allows us to really stay here and also be there too? Yeah. For me, that's what IFS is about. So you go to that, I go, when I do it, I go there not to spend lots of time there. It's just a kind of reminder that that's there and that's who I am ultimately. And then the, you know, the idea is to become your own bodhisattva, you know, to come back here to your parts who didn't go there with you yeah. uh, and show them compassion and heal them. And then they can come with you when the time comes. When so, they're healthy and integrated. When I they're guess. unburdened. Yeah. And are, yeah. And, and integrated with each other. And that a lot of what we're here to do is that, and to, to not, to bring that to this plane, what I keep saying. And you do that when you come back, and you, you embrace all these parts. And, you know, uh, I mentioned Bodhisattva, but it's also could be seen as what uh, Jesus did in the outside world. You know, uh-huh. he went to the exiles. He went to the lepers and to the poor people and, to, right. nice. and embraced them and brought them back home. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what IFS is about. It's about bringing that here so that when you're here in self, you don't feel in the wave, you, you have an individual identity, but you have all the, the wave qualities embodied. Right, got it. So in Soul Shaping, uh, which I know you had just said that you had just read, um, I talked about my parts um, because I was interfacing and with these aspects of self somehow at an early age. and. I remember being in Mr. Higgins' European geography class and, and hearing a voice inside of me say, you know, this, you're not really you anymore. What happened to you? You used to be more intact, whatever the wording was. And um, so I had an understanding that there was this core primary me, and then there were these, I didn't have your language for it, but that there were these, what I would call adaptations and disguises. So one of them was uh, I called Encyclopedia Brown, which was my head tripping way managing reality, surviving by my wits. One of them I called Hyper Boy, which was staying in motion so they couldn't attack me. Um, one of them was Bad Boy, who was just acting out his stuff everywhere. And I understood those to be primarily um, defenses or adaptations and disguises, masks I wore to get through life, um, ways of coping. Right. But there was one other one, which I mentioned in the first part of Soul Shaping that I called the warrior. And the warrior felt to me both to be a necessary adaptation to survive my crazy family, but it also felt deeply connected to my soul's journey. Um, I had glimpses of a, of a famous Canadian criminal lawyer, Eddie Greenspan, on television as a teenager. And I used to say, I'm going to work with that guy one day. I know that guy. I can feel where that guy is coming from. Um, And no one took it seriously. Nobody in my family went to law school or university or anything like that. But it felt really true to me. He felt familiar to me. Um, And then I had other glimpses of other steps that I would take going forward in my life, studying psychotherapy and then writing. And all of it just seemed law, psychotherapy, writing. It all seemed to me encoded in me, what James Hillman called the innate image. Um, And I wonder, you know, how can we understand 
this idea that the soul comes in with a particular, what I might call sacred purpose, template of possibility for this lifetime, encoded path, information, directionality, why you're doing IFS work, why I wrote Grounded Spirituality, um, that isn't j just about adaptations and disguises, but is about like a core soul self that threads through each of us that is synonymous with or different from what you would call the self. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question is, how do we, how do you feel we can understand the soul and the soul's intrinsic journey mm -hmm. um, in relation to this idea of a self leadership experience? Yeah. So um, not an easy question. I know. No, it's, it's a good question. And, uh, there are several different things I want to respond to what you said. So for me, the idea of parts as adaptations and disguises is diminishing to them. So, uh, so I've been a kind of crusader for the personhood of parts to actually instead see them as sacred inner beings, as sacred as people and uh, on their own path, their own journeys. That warms me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then second, to really answer your question, I have to do something that I don't often do, which is to talk about uh, phenomena that we call guides that uh, I think in your book was a little missy. Yeah, that was what my warrior self called the part of me that was pulling me in another direction in an effort to disparage her credibility, actually. Yeah, and my guess is if you were to spend some time actually getting to know her, she would probably say she's not a part of you, that she's something else. Intrinsic. No, she's what we call a guide. So, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of traditions talk about these guides, and I just, I didn't believe any of this when I got into it. I come from a very scientific background. But as a good scientist, I follow the data, even if it takes me way outside my paradigm. Right. And these guides started showing up in clients, many, many different clients uh, at a certain point. And uh, I started interviewing them about what is the deal and why are we here and what, you know, what are you guys here for? Yeah. And the answers I got from many different sources was, uh, and this is a long way of answering your question, okay. was that this is a very difficult school and that we're here to learn lessons. And the lesson plans are contained in the burdens we carry and the parts carry the burdens. As we unburden, we're doing what we're here to do. And as we do that, sort of our purpose here, what you really beautifully describe in soul shaping, I think the word is entelechy, is it? How do you entelechy, I've never heard anyone say it, so we'll figure it out together. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that they have some ideas about what we're supposed to do here. And right. they, when we're doing what they want us to do, uh, they help us. And what's called synchronicity and all these things start to open up for us. And that's been we're my... whisper in our inner ear. Yeah, yeah. But not only. I mean, in the outside world, things start yeah. to come that, you know, like when I'm writing this book, all the material I need is just coming to me from different sources at the right, right time. Uh, so they help out, and then when uh, you're off your path, they'll fuck up your life so that you can't keep doing it. Just keep tripping you up. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've come to learn. This is, again, just the data that I've received from these investigations. And, uh, you know, it's, now it's working for me. In fact, um, they've made it clear that IFS didn't come out of my pea brain, that actually uh, I'm just sort of channeling this wisdom. You're channeling it, but it's not external to you. It is also intrinsic to you. Yes, you know. Yeah, I mean, oh, okay. yeah. the guides aren't necessarily intrinsic to us. Uh-huh. So in, in soul shaping, I talked about Plato's story, the myth of error, the idea that we go to the forgetful river of souls and some of us go down wherever that is. And some of us come back, you know, and this idea that 
something or some being whispers in our inner ear to let us know what we're here to do in this lifetime. What are we here to learn, to grow through what I would call sacred purpose. And, you know, a lot of times people write in the field about purpose and they just talk about the great, you know, to do IFS, to build a model, to change the world. And, and what they don't talk about and what I do talk about is, you know, the importance of doing the work healing in the emotional body. Mm -hmm. For me, repressed emotions are unactualized spiritual lessons. I, I don't make a distinction between emotional and spiritual maturity. That's what was my learning because I was, did body-centered work with Al Lowen and I kept growing and maturing in my capacity to hold everything mm -hmm. through this work in my body. And, and I did have little Missy whispering me, not always telling me which way to go at first, but saying law's not for you. And I was, of course, my warrior self, my Jewish self who came from nothing, my responsible for my family self said, of course you're going to go be a prominent trial lawyer and make a gazillion dollars and change the um, and she said, no, you're not, but I can't tell you what you're here to do yet, but I know you can't walk in that direction. Right. So for whatever reason, I was crazy enough to trust her. And what I find interesting about this experience of her, um, so she's holding an awareness of what I'm here to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't experience myself as sort of having to really figure it out. I feel like it's all lined up inside. I just got to get out of my own way. And then the next exit on the off-ramp is already labeled with the next thing I'm supposed to create and produce. I live like that internally. What was interesting about her, I went through a number of years as I was after I wrote Soul Shake, I wrote Uncommon Bond around that time, when I didn't hear from her. I didn't experience anything related to her anymore. It was almost like I had become that now. And then I started to sort of chase publishers and do everything that really isn't me. And then in the middle of the night, I had a dream. And in the dream, she said, fire your agent, stop chasing publishers, stop trying to contact Oprah, just do it the way you do it, do it on your own terms. And I woke up and I fired the agent. I stopped chasing publishers, stopped sending books to Oprah. And then she went quiet again. It was, uh, you know, it was like she's holding some truth. And I believe so much of my work, and I know your work, is to remind people that inside of all of this is not just some... Um, you know, uh, arbitrarily healthy notion of self, but one that's actually encoded with meaning and directionality. And, right. and if we can yeah, just... All that's, all that's exactly the same as my experience. Uh, right. That I'll hear from guides explicitly on occasion, and then as I heed their advice, I don't much hear from them, but they do start to grease the skids. In other words, make it possible for you to move in that direction. Yeah, they help in all kinds of serendipitous ways in, in my outside world. I mean, have you, um, did you name any of them? My own? No. Okay. Don't, they don't seem to be that interested in talking to me that much. <laughs> right. But there's not one primary one, like a little Missy, there's aspects more? Um, it's unclear to me. The whole thing is quite unclear. I mean, I envy a lot of clients who do have one and it's very clear to them and they can see it and they talk to it. One of the few times I got a direct experience, a direct message was early in the development of this. I, uh, you know, to get in front of a, what's it called? Um, I was in a psychiatric department at the University of Illinois at Chicago and I would do grand rounds in front of these psychiatrists who were all analysts or biomedical people and get up as a 32-year-old kid and talk about things that contradicted what they were saying. And to do that, I had to rely on a part of me that didn't give a shit about what anybody thought. It was very arrogant in a sense. And that was covering over parts of me that felt totally worthless and carried those burdens from my father. And as I was doing that, it got me out there and it got the model out there. Yeah. But there, there was a point where I was becoming a leader of something. You know, I had, a, I had a following. And I got this very clear message one day. We gave this to you. It's not yours. And don't fuck it up. Mm. And so I then, you know, I really turned inside and started to work with the parts that were arrogant and, and needed accolades. And... Mm and so on. And so now I frequently get comments about how humble I am and, and it's, uh, you know, it's genuine and you know, maybe it's the, uh, it's a contradiction to say you're humble. If you say you're humble, you're not humble, but 
<laughs> yes, you, you can still be humble and say you're humble. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, it feels pretty genuine. I'm not out there with other motives that I used to be because uh, I've unburdened a lot of those parts. And it feels much more self-led. It feels more like I'm doing it because, like you said, this is what we're here to do. I found my path and I love doing it. You know, this is maybe why on an energetic level, apart from as a matter of philosophy, I feel resonance with you because when I came into this field, I had this crazy idea. I was going to find like all these people who were driven by what I was calling sacred purpose. Like, I don't know, I wouldn't use the word channeling, but called to whatever that is. And And what I encountered were so many people who were motivated by unhealthily egoic and financial concerns to bring their offerings and their teachings. And and I had a real hard time slowly gathering a community of people who were working and writing in the field that I felt real heartfelt resonance with, you know, that that we didn't think we were all that, you know. And I get that piece where you still have to be a little bit confident to push against, like I'm writing against patriarchal spirituality. That's a pretty large community of people to write against. So I have to sometimes come in really hard. I don't like it. You know, I prefer coming in sweeter and softer. I like the way it feels in my body a lot better, but, but I get it. But I, you know, at the same time, understanding that we're, divine instruments or I don't even even that feels too egoic to language it but but there's something and then I start to believe really that we all are that if we could all do the parts work to get all this mishigas out of the way we're all carrying this encoded sacred purpose whatever you call it soul scriptures anything you want um and that if we can all just get aligned with it, we'll stop hurting other people. Because my experience is the more I am aligned with why I'm really here, the last thing I want to do is cause anybody else suffering, you know? That's uh, my thinking about it. And, and um, the bigger goal now for me is to achieve that, is to bring this awareness of who we really are to the culture. And um, that changes everything once people start to get that. everything everything so, yeah. yeah we're really on the same page with that too i actually just wrote a chapter in uh, another book the second edition of the original book that just came out on taking a country like the united states and thinking of it as a individual mm-hmm. that has parts and, yeah. uh, and taking it as a trauma survivor you know right and looking at also the burdens so people have individual burdens, personal burdens that came from their direct traumas in life. Yeah. But we all carry what I'm going to call legacy burdens, which right. are ancestral in, trauma. Yes. That came into us through our family lineage, through our ethnic group, through our culture. And so I started to think, what are the, the burdens that are driving the, the American culture? Mm. And so I identified four main ones, one of which you're writing about, which is patriarchy. Yeah than individualism and the idea that we should be able to do things through willpower and so on. Yes. And then a survivalistic construct, just work your way through it. Yep. Individualists and we're all going to make it. We don't need the, we don't need the liberal government. We will fend for ourselves. Through yeah, our- that, that's a big one. And then, uh, what are the other two? Um, racism. Yeah. And then materialism four burdens have organized the way our uh, country exiles many, many people. So there are more exiles in the United States than ever in its history in the sense of the the difference between income is greater than it's ever been. It's radical. And and there's lots of exiles through uh, racism and patriarchy and so on too. So we have massive numbers of exiles now in our country. And any system that gets lots of exiles has lots of extreme protectors. And you look at an individual, and that's always the case. But same thing. Right. Same thing. And so we have, and then those protectors will polarize mm-hmm. with each other. And, and so trying to, to use the IFS map as a way to understand systems at all levels. Mm-hmm. I've begun to, Brilliant. Like, two weeks ago, I just uh, was working with... Uh, a group of senior partners at McKinsey, which is the big consulting firm and uh, who work with world leaders and so on uh, and teaching them IFS and they sort of caught the, the bug. So 
I'm trying to start to bring it to larger systems that way. Nice. I mean, do you feel with, you know, I don't know how seriously or not seriously you take the, the climate change issue, but I mean, do you feel now more desperate to bring this message that we're, that we're in more trouble than you ever imagined 10 or 15 years ago? Um, yeah, I do. And, and that's challenging too. You know, I had my first two grandchildren this year. and Congratulations. There's nothing that makes you, you know, desirous of changing the world than uh, having kids you're so connected to who uh, are going to suffer. That generation, the way we're headed, is really in for a really bad life. And so, yeah, there is an increasing urgency. Uh, and self doesn't go with urgency. You know, it's, it's a kind of a... Um, Paradox, I guess, or, uh, you know, it's as I work with the parts that feel the urgency, I need to ask them to give me the space to keep going the pace it's supposed to go. Yeah, so, that's I get that feels complicated. You complicated, know? contradictory. and uh, I know, you just want to lie down sometimes and take a rest, but you feel like you better get a move on because we're all in trouble. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, and yes, and there are parts of me, like everybody, that want to pretend it's not there and, and just uh, keep my little life okay. And yeah, and I work with those too. So that's the balance is, is really being able to see with that C word clarity, mm -hmm. what's actually happening, mm -hmm. but not paralyzed by it. And, and also not, and I, I've been training social activists also in this and, and yeah. to not do their social activism from that, righteous, urgent place that uh, puts people off all the time. But from a grounded, sustainable, accessible, relatable place. Yeah, yeah, like, I think you had the metaphor of an inchworm or something, yeah. Growers are inchworms. Yeah. yeah. I know, but even that makes me nervous now. You know, it's funny, the climate change thing, you know, the whole theme of it, one of my greatest fears about it, apart from the climate change itself, is that, it forces people who are on the borderline moving in the direction of a more authentic, progressive, inclusive consciousness to go back to gripping survivalism. And, you know, and that how do we stay heartfelt, open, growthful, and inclusive when we're afraid for our life? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So you're, uh, just to let people know, you just completed or are completing an audio course with Sounds True. What's it called again, the course? It's called Greater Than the Sum of the Parts. So it's, uh, it's an attempt to outline the spiritual side of IFS. And I completed that a couple of years ago. Okay. And now... Um, I'm Is it out? Is it out already, Dick? Yeah, yeah, it's out. Oh, okay. And now I'm trying to turn that into a book. And is a working title for the book, or will it be the same title? I'm not sure yet. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, in terms of moving in the direction of integrating IFS with this thing I call grounded spirituality, mm -hmm. as opposed to what we've been told by the patriarchy as spirituality, mm -hmm. what do you see as being a possible interface, or how do those these notions, I mean, they reflect each other, um, but how do they support one another? Uh, anything more specific in that question? I mean, uh, in realment as a concept, for example, something mm -hmm. I talked about, this notion of every single part of us being at the table. Um, mm -hmm. So can you see a way of doing something called the spiritual teaching in a way that is actually uh, completely aligned with IFS as a teaching and exercise model, for example? Or, or maybe better put, do you feel as though what you've been doing is essentially a spiritual teaching? I do. I don't package it that way much because I don't want to, you know, be seen as a guru and this is a cult or anything. But do I believe it is? Yes. I believe I'm totally into the parallels. And, and what you just said about bringing all the parts to the table is part right. of that. So, um, one way to think about it is, again, if you think of these parts as spiritual beings on their own journey and you're sort of their guy as self then it only makes sense to help them as much as you can without doing it for them because they have to learn their own lessons 
a lot of the help is going to them and letting them know they're loved and that they're a part of you. They're not isolated little, you know, um, survivalists themselves, which a lot of these parts feel. Right, right. And, and bring them home, bring them in, have them get to know each other, feel the sense of community with all of that. But what you also find is you, if you really delve into this work is that they are little microcosms in the sense that each part has a self and each part has parts. Right. And, and they in some ways parallel the system that they're embedded in. And if I, and I've actually gone one step further and if you go there, your head explodes because Right, right, right. You know, it's the turtles <laughs> all the way down kind of thing. Right, right. And so there's something spiritual about that, that it's all the same form on, you know, many, many different levels. Mm. And I think at the guide level, it's pretty, probably pretty similar too. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure how we got into that, but yes. Yeah. For me, it's become a kind of spiritual path that people uh go on as they do this and and again the goal is to learn your lessons while you're here so you don't have to come back and your lesson plan is the burden so the but i like it here i like ice cream why do i want to why can't i come back i want to come back i just want to do it a little better next time that's all (laughs) so thank you so i have i have one more question sometimes you know I've worked with people for years in client sessions and, and, and you have of course worked with thousands of people. And I wonder sometimes, you know, relationship is such a challenge. It's particularly intimate relationship for so many of us. And to me, it kind of makes sense. I feel like we've been sold this karmic bill of goods about how good and perfect that's supposed to be for 50 years. And, and then I think, how is that possible? It's all most of us can do to even begin to name our parts. So we're going to get in a room with another person and have a fluid and perfectly ecstatic experience for 20 to 50 years. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I mean, what is a realistic expectation set based on where we're at developmentally as individuals with respect to love relationship in this world? Yeah. Along the lines of what we're talking about, I developed a concept of uh, your intimate partner as your tormentor, Mm. the hyphen between the tor and the mentor. Uh So by tormenting you, he or she is is bringing up the parts of you that you need to heal. So they're not supposed to be your soulmate who's just always nice and, and loving to you. They're actually, their parts are supposed to trigger your parts. And that's true in most couples. In most couples therapies, people come in and it's parts wars. There's no self available and they're just dominated by these protectors. But our job as therapists is to get them each to do what I call a U-turn in their focus so that they go in and find the parts that are being triggered and begin that healing process. And as they do that, they're learning the lessons they came here to learn. And one of the lessons may be, you know, this isn't really the right partner. Just like you learned that law wasn't really your calling. And that, you know, that might happen. But often they also learn that, my partner is not these parts that I hate. My partner is this other person who I has hidden from me, but now I'm getting to see, and I really love that person. And, mm-hmm. and I, I can also see how much I'm hurting my partner's exiles by saying these, these mean things to them. Yeah, nice. So, so that's a totally different frame for why we have partners. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we just call that conscious relationship now or something. I mean, mm-hmm. but, but in your work, you know, the, the distinction between those connections who are entangled in the parts war that are worth staying with versus those that are what I call wound mates in uncommon bond and grounded spirituality that really aren't a fit. How do we, how does one distinguish between those two paths? You know, the stuff's coming up in both places, but some mm-hmm. of them there's, basis for hope, some of them that's hopeless? How do we know yeah. the difference? You know, there is such a thing as matriculation. So at some point you learn the lessons you're supposed to learn from this particular relationship mm. and you can matriculate. And, uh, and you get more access to yourself and your guides. And like I said, just like you knew that law wasn't for you, at some point yep. you, you recognize right. that. 
or you right. recognize that oh, this is the person, all I've got to do is if I can be in self more often, I'll have more access to the person I love. And so my job is to do that. My job is to get my parts to not keep triggering her. Right. I like it. Matriculation. <laughs> Graduation. What a concept. Yeah. <laughs> the other, I think, important concept here, and this is, uh, I, I also did a chapter in this book called The Laws of Inner Physics. What's the name of this book? This book is called um, uh, Internal Family Systems Therapy, uh, the second edition. Oh, okay. Got it. I wrote the first edition in 95, and so it's been long. Mm. Also, it's about 70% new material. Wow. Um, and it's through Guilford, or I'd send you a copy. I don't have any. Um, but uh, I wrote a chapter called The Laws of Inner Physics. So I, as a student of inner, the inner world, I, I see there are laws about how things can operate and can. Mm. They're different from these external laws. One of them is uh, that you will relate to people who resemble parts of you in the way you relate to that part. So if you hate your vulnerability, if you hate your exiles, then when your partner is, is crying, that contempt is gonna be your reaction. And if you are terrified of your anger, then when your partner is angry at you, you're gonna be terrified and so on. And so the lesson there is, as you improve your relationships with these parts of you, then when people resemble them, you can stay in self and you can, uh, yeah. See them through a more valid light, less projected yeah. light. Yeah. And less reactive. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. You're welcome. Anything else to uh, share that comes up? Just that uh, I always love talking to you. Yeah, me too. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Like it's you said, there's a strong connection and we're on the same wavelength by and large. And yep. Uh, yep. I'm honored by your interest in IFS. So. Yeah. I've noticed you've been sharing, I think, more uh, images on Instagram with some of your quotes lately. And I've been sharing some of those. I think they're fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You finally hired a social media person. So. Yeah, something happened. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> really good, so, yeah. Hey, good stuff. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for this conversation. I think people will get a lot out of it. You're very welcome. I hope we keep it going. Okay. Bye for now. Bye bye. All around us in blue.